some of the uh, very doctrine that Paul was just speaking about is what motivated a lot of these men in history that we're going to talk about to uh, devote their lives to the transmission of the Bible and some of them even martyrs' deaths. Until Wycliffe translated the New Testament, only small portions of the Bible had been translated to English and this was scattered throughout uh, a time period of about 400 years, 600 to 1000 AD, small portions. And there was 300 years with no English Bible translations. The Norman invasion of 1066 was the main fundamental reason behind this. And that's some of the things that we'll be talking about is some of the, the issues that these men had to deal with along with the spirit-driven motivation to uh, translate the Word of God. John Wycliffe was born between 1325 and 1330, educated at Oxford, earning his doctorate in theology in his 40s. In 1372, though he was a Roman Catholic priest, he didn't hesitate to speak against excesses of the church. He did not consider the clergy to have any special rights, even though he belonged to their class. His views were grounded in scripture. He believed that men were directly accountable to God and they needed to have the Bible translated into their own language. He began to chip away at unbiblical practices and beliefs in the church. Not only did he reject the doctrine of transubstantiation, he also rejected all church hierarchy, including papal authority. And uh, to be more interactive, I've asked Austin to help define a few terms, and if Austin will come up here, he's going to talk a moment on transubstantiation. Do you want me to use the microphone for the recording? Or? Yeah, just lean real Just lean in. Okay. All right, uh, transubstantiation, that's a big fancy word. Uh, that is a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, a dogma is something that you must believe de fide, according to Rome, in order to be considered a part of the church and a true Christian. If you are here and you do not believe in transubstantiation, you are considered a formal heretic by the Roman Catholic Church, so congratulations. If you're here and you do believe in transubstantiation, uh, please see Paul for all matters of church discipline. <laughs> transubstantiation was defined at the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215. Uh, for those of you wondering, the Lateran was the papal palace that traditionally the popes lived and ruled in from the time of Constantine when he gave the Lateran Palace to the popes, all the way up until the Great Schism, which we're going to talk about later in this lecture. So what is transubstantiation? It is the Roman Catholic theology of what we would call the Lord's Supper. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we, we typically, especially as Reformed people, would say that we are communing with Christ spiritually, but the bread that we eat and the wine that we drink are still bread and wine. Nothing magical happens to them. We have a spiritual communion with Christ mediated to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is not what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. They teach that the bread and the wine are transformed into the literal, physical body and blood of Christ. So what happens in a Roman Catholic service is the priest will be at the front, there'll be an altar with the elements on it, and he will speak the words of consecration over those elements. He'll say, hopus corpus meum, which is Latin for this is my body. You'll remember at the Last Supper in the Gospel accounts, Jesus says, this is my body. 
they took that and said, okay, we'll say those words in Latin for reasons that I won't get into, maybe Roy will. Um, and when the priest speaks those words over the bread and the wine, according to Roman Catholic theology, they are literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Now you might be thinking, how could those people be so dim-witted? Can they not look down and see that nothing's changed? When they're eating the bread, when they're drinking the wine, it still tastes just like bread does. It still feels like wine going down. So what on earth would cause someone to believe this? We have to understand the philosophy behind transubstantiation. In the, mid in the Middle Ages, you may have heard the term scholasticism. Most of us probably have. This was uh, the way that theology was practiced is that they would try to explain theological terms in terms of human philosophy that was popular at the time. Aristotle was a pagan philosopher from before the days of Jesus who was very popular, but he had been lost to most of the Western world in the history of the early church. It was actually the Muslims who, uh, who read Aristotle in the 700s and the 800s, and when the Muslim countries and the Western Europe, uh, Europeans started interacting with one another, uh, Aristotle was transmitted from the Muslim world into the Western world. And then philosophers and theologians used Aristotle's categories of essence and being in order to define transubstantiation. So what did Aristotle teach? Uh, the best way to explain this is to use the analogy of, or to use the example of a chair. We take a look, we have a chair here in this room, and we, all, we also know that we have a chair in the back. You, you know that green chair. No, I call it German chair. Uh, for Aristotle, you, any object has two categories, the essence of the object and the accidents of the object. So a chair has certain essential characteristics that are non-negotiable that make it what it is. It has four, four legs, it has a back, it's used for sitting. Those categories are the essence of the thing. Now, we recognize that both of those objects in this room could rightly be called chairs, but they're not identical to one another. One's dark brown, one's green, one's really wide, one's skinny, one's tall, one's short. Those aspects of a thing that can vary from one object to the other without changing what it is are called the accidental properties of a thing. So this chair could be painted blue. The color doesn't matter. It's still a chair. That's an accidental property of the thing. So with those categories in mind, let's go back to the, the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church believes that when the priest performs transubstantiation, the essence of the bread and the wine changes from bread and wine to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. But the accidental properties of the bread and the wine remain unchanged. So it still looks like bread, it still tastes like bread, it still feels like bread. Those accidental properties of it are unchanged. But you can't see this, you have to take it by faith. The essential properties of it have been transformed through a miracle of God. We don't believe in this uh, because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that you have to eat the literal physical body and blood of Christ to partake in what they call the Eucharist, the Mass, in order to have permission and forgiveness of sins. That gets into issues of atonement, the sufficiency of Christ's work. I won't go into that. But that's transubstantiation. Any questions? So, why is this important to point out? How do we, as a church body and Christians, determine that that's a false doctrine? We have scripture in our hands. We can look at scripture, we can compare it for ourselves, and we can determine 
that that's not biblical. Neither is the ceremonial practices of the Roman Catholic Church. So what Wycliffe is battling at this point is a group of people that have all authority because they contain the Bible in a language that the common person cannot interpret or read. So what his motivation and goal is, is to put a Bible into the common man's hand. Wycliffe was the main factor behind a translation of the New Testament into English. In 1382, he was the prime mover in its production. And the Old Testament was done by others. The text that Wycliffe and his associates, associates used to translate from was the Latin Vulgate rather than the original Greek and Hebrew. But it was still a step forward in the English translation. The Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, was the official Bible in Western Europe from the late 4th century on. It reigned for about 1,100 years total, if I'm not mistaken. A translation that St. Jerome had made by the order of Pope Damasus. Since Greek had begun to die out in the Western Europe countries, or Western Europe, after Constantine moved the capital to the east, Latin naturally became the language of the people in the West. By the Middle Ages, Greek had become completely unknown to the Western Europe, and it was not studied again until 1458 in Paris. So there was a large period of time where Greek just basically disappeared. The University of Paris in 1458 was when it was next studied. In terms of longevity, the Latin Vulgate is the most influential translation of the Bible in history. As good as the Latin Vulgate was, there were severe shortcomings in its translation. For one, Latin does not have the definite article. So I'm going to ask Austin to come up here again and inform us of this definite article. Okay, the best way to talk about the definite article is to just tell you what it is in English. In English, as in most languages, we have a definite article and an indefinite article. The definite article in English is the word the. That's pretty easy. Why do we call it the definite article? Well, if I say, I want the book, I'm talking about a specific definite object. You know which one it is. It's the book. So it's a definite article. The contrast with that is an indefinite article. If I say, I want a book, well, I'm not telling you which specific book. It's an indefinite thing. I'll take any book. I just want a book. Now, all languages have that. Most languages, when we're talking about the uh, definite article, they have more than one word for it. Spanish has four. El, la, los, las. We have one, the. Greek has like 24 different forms of the definite article. So you can see why studying Greek is not fun. Um, but it's basically, for our purposes, just think of it as the word the. It has many other uses in Greek than it does in English. For example, uh, in Greek they would say the Peter when talking about the apostle. We wouldn't put the word the in front of a proper name. But they do in other languages and in Greek. There's a whole lot more that the Greek article does that the English article does not. But we don't have time to get into all that. It's not a grammar class. Yes, so why is that important? So Wycliffe translates from the Latin Vulgate into English. And since Latin does not contain the definite article, I wonder how many times it occurs in Greek. Greek, the definite article occurs over 20,000 times. So when we were talking last week about conveying the proper message from the author's intent into another language, 
things like this, the definite article, are going to come play a major role in uh, uh, conveying the proper intent of the author. And yet Wycliffe knew none of this since he only used the Latin text as his base. I don't even think he was informed that there was a definite article in Greek at this period of time. Wycliffe's Bible went through two editions in 1382 and in 1395. The second edition was by Wycliffe's assistant, John Purvey, because Wycliffe had already died of natural causes. Although Purvey's edition was a significant improvement, Wood could... Uh, you couldn't consider it either version a masterpiece of English. The first edition was slavishly literal. It was the more formal equivalency, even to the point of retaining the Latin word order in English. So it would be very uh, confusing, confusing when reading it. The Wycliffe's Bible illustrates on every page that a word-for-word -word translation is not necessarily an accurate translation because the meaning of the original is not communicated clearly in this kind of rendering. But what was significant about Wycliffe's translation, it was the first complete Bible into English. In, in fact, it was the first complete Bible in any modern European language. It also indirectly began to break down the power structure of the po political religious machinery of the Roman Catholic Church. Common people, lay folk, did not need to rely on the priest anymore to access God. They could even challenge the religious leaders on doctrine. By 1408, even reading the Bible in English was outlawed. Owning a copy was risking life and liberty. So powerful was Wycliffe's influence that the Pope decreed his bones to be dug up, burned, and then scattered in the River Swift which happened in 1428. So he had impacted them so much that they were so angry. 43 years after he died, they, they dug him back up and burned his bones and threw him in the river. His translation was completed more than 60 years before the invention of the mobile printing press. Remember we were talking about a lot of the Bibles were handwritten. All Wycliffe's Bibles were handwritten copies. This lessened the impact considerably, but nevertheless, there were more than a thousand copies made, and it took one year to make one copy. No English translations occurred between Wycliffe and Tyndale. 130 years passed without progress. Part of the reason being that the 1408 British law, where it was illegal and outlawed, against the Bible was still in effect. Meanwhile, there were encouraging signs in the rest of Europe. There was Italian, French, Spanish, and Dutch Bibles that appeared in the 1400s, most likely inspired by Wycliffe and his uh, efforts. Several major events took place between Wycliffe and Tyndale. This is some of the, the things that prevented any more translations being made Invention of the, well, this one didn't. 1378, the Great Schism. This one did. Austin will explain to us briefly the Great Schism. So the Great Schism was between 1378 and 1414. But in order to understand it, of course, we have to go back to the early 1300s. Um, in the early 1300s, late 1200s, early 1300s, Boniface VIII was ruling as Pope. 
Now Boniface was having a lot of conflict with the French king, Philip IV. They were arguing over taxation, money, typical things that secular rulers argue over. This caused a lot of tension between the papacy and secular rulers. Boniface died in 1303 and was succeeded by Benedict XI, who also had conflict, but Benedict didn't last very long. He died in 1305. Now, the people who elect the pope normally are called the cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church. They decided, we don't like the king of France, but we, don't, we can't afford to go to war with him either. So we're going to appease him. We're going to elect a Frenchman as pope for the first time ever. So they elected a guy named Clement V. Now, Clement was an old, sickly dude who was living in France. He decided, I better come to Rome to rule. So he started his journey, and remember, it takes a long time to travel back then, so it, it would take months and months to get from France to Rome. On his way, he had to stop in a city called Avignon in southern France. A lot of political stuff happened during his time there. He ended up getting stuck in Avignon, and he eventually decided, I'm just going to stay and rule in this southern French city. I'm not even going to make it all the way to Rome. So he ruled until 1315, at which time he was succeeded by John the 22nd, I think is who it was, who was also a Frenchman. He decided, you know, I kind of like it here in Avignon, too. I'm going to stay, too. And in fact, seven popes stayed and ruled in Avignon instead of France from 1309 to 1378 or so. The last of those popes, Gregory XI, decided, okay, we've been here long enough. I'm going to go back to Rome now. So in 1377, he starts heading back to Rome. He gets there, and he dies like a week later. And the cardinals go, okay, we got to elect a new pope. They elect Urban VI. A month later, they figure out the guy's a maniac. He talks to himself. He's like a, almost like a psychopathic killer or something. They're like, okay, we got to get rid of this guy. So they, 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 they come back together and say, no, that wasn't a valid election. We need someone else. So they elect Clement VII. What do you think? Urban just rolled over and said, okay, that's cool. No, of course not. He rides in with troops into Rome, kicks Clement out, and says, no, I'm, I'm going to remain pope. Clement flees to Avignon the place where the popes have been for the past 70 years. Neither one of them is willing to give up power. So now you have a pope ruling in Avignon and a pope ruling in Rome. This lasts for, what, 30 some odd years until finally people say, okay, that's enough. We, we got to settle this. So in 1409, they hold a council at Pisa. You've heard of the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy? That's the same place. They hold a council and they say, okay, we're getting rid of both of those guys. Neither of them is pope. And they elect a guy named Alexander V to be pope. What do you think that either of the popes gave up control? No, of course not. So now you had three popes ruling at the time. This is called the Great Schism, where you have three popes. Now, this had an incredibly detrimental psychological effect on Europeans. Think for just a moment. You're an average European. You're baptized into the Roman Catholic Church. You have to undergo mass and penances for forgiveness of sins. You have to get last rites on your deathbed. Your marriage is a sacrament of the church, and your child's baptism is as well. Which, if, since baptism is what justifies you in Rome, not having your child baptized is a big deal. But the validity of all those sacraments is dependent upon whether you're following the right pope or not. Yeah. And now you've got three options, and nobody knows who the true pope is. So if your child is born, and as often happened back then, is about to die due to complications of childbirth, whatever, you need to get them baptized immediately. But if you've got, if your bishop's following the wrong pope, the baptism's no good and he's going straight to hell. So this is a serious issue for, for Europeans at the time. So you've got three popes ruling. Neither one of them is willing to give up power. 
So a few years later, in 1414, they come together with another council and say, okay, we've got to do something about this. It's the Council of Constance in 1414. They, they evict all three of the popes. They manage, to, um, they manage to threaten one with jail. He says, okay, I'll resign. Uh, another one had lost so much of his support, he said, I can't even put up a fight anymore, so he resigned. And the other one, they, they rode in on uh, and kicked him out and, and basically said, we'll kill you if you don't <laughs> give up your, your papacy. They elected uh, Martin V to be the replacement pope. So the, the schism was resolved in 1414 at the Council of Constance. Martin V became the new true pope. But there was a period of many decades there where you had multiple lines of popes and nobody knew who the, the true pope was. Now we would say all of them were false teachers in the church, but nevertheless, that's the great schism. The Great Schism. Yes, and at that council, when they identified the true pope, is where they uh, dug up Wycliffe's bones and burnt them. Next big event is in 1454 is the invention of the movable type printing press. Gutenberg's first full-length book was the Latin Vulgate. And then in 1453, Turks invade Byzantium, where Constantine moved his capital 1,100 years prior. With the invasion of Greek scholars, whoa, sorry, I forgot to put a comma. With the invasion, Greek scholars took their manuscripts and fled into Europe. Five years later, Greek is offered at European University. The Reformation and Renaissance would be born as a result of the rediscovery of classical Greek, of the Greek New Testament. The New World was discovered in 19, oh, sorry, 1492. The first published Greek New Testament was 1516 as a result of the printing press. And October the 31st of 1517, does that sound familiar? Yes. The Reformation was born. Martin Luther challenged the Roman Catholic Church with his 95 Thesis. Tyndale was contemplating a fresh translation of the Bible in the 1520s. He could not do so while in England due to the 1408 law, which banned the reading and possession of any English Bible. So he traveled to Germany, where he, introduced, he was introduced to rabbis from whom he learned Hebrew. While there, he translated much of the Bible into English, but could not return to England for fear of his life. By 1525, he had completed his first copy of the New Testament, but would not get printed until 1526. So he went a whole year after translating before he could get it printed. And he also coined some new words that we uh, still use today uh, in the English vocabulary. Um, we have so for the last 500 years, such as the English word Passover, uh, the English word peacemaker, the English word scapegoat, and the adjective beautiful. The word beautiful was coined by Mr. Tyndale. Altogether, he produced five editions of the New Testament, but the third edition of 1534 is the one most remembered. And uh, a lot of his work was great, but his fate was not so flashy. He was kidnapped in 1535 in Antwerp and burned at the stake the next year for heresy. His charge, making a corrupt translation of the Bible, when in reality it was a really good English translation. Tyndale consulted Luther's 
German translation and the Latin Vulgate to help with the hard places, but his translation was primarily from the Greek text. He was using primarily Erasmus's third edition. The 1534 edition was a wonderful and lucid translation for its day. He turned good Greek into good English. Significance of Tyndale's work. It was the first in English translation after the age of the printing press. It was also the first English translation that came directly from Greek. It was the first to use italics for words, not in the text. Like if it was not in the original, he would put uh, italics to identify, and this hev heavily influenced the King James Version. And in rapid succession, after Tyndale's came three translations, which were all inferior to Tyndale's, but uh, were very important landmarks. The Coverdale Bible in 1535. This was by Tyndale's assistant, Miles Coverdale. His became the first complete Bible printed in English, placing the Apocrypha at the end of the Old Testament and not interspersed. And then after that, you have the Matthews Bible, of 1537. Matthew's Bible of 1537. It was the work of John Rogers, or pen name Thomas Matthews. Combined, what he did was just combined the Coverdale's Old Testament with the Tyndale's New Testament, so it wasn't really anything spectacular and new. And he became the first martyr in 1555 under Mary Tudor, or Bloody Mary. She was the Catholic monarch. Uh, he, he was burnt at the stake. After this one, the next translation was the Great Bible of 1539. The Great Bible of 1539. It was called the Great Bible not because of its liter literary quality, but uh, because of its great size. Lord Cromwell commissioned Miles Coverdale to publish this Bible. It was based on the Matthews Bible because Coverdale did not know Greek or Hebrew. All he did was revise Rogers' version and deleted the notes. In 1543, the same King Henry VIII, who had approved the Coverdale, forbade any public, unauthorized exposition of Scripture as well as all private reading of the Bible among lower class. So you had to be in a certain class to uh, be able to exposit scripture. Three years later, he banned all copies of Tyndale and Coverdale in support of the Great Bible, which is very ironic considering it was essentially Tyndale's exact Bible just edited by Coverdale. The Geneva Bible was in 1560. The Geneva Bible, 1560. Henry VIII's son, Edward VI, I don't really know how that happens, but he became king, and the Reformation was back in swing. But his reign didn't last long. In 1553, his sister, Mary Tudor, or Bloody Mary, ascended the throne. And she reversed everything that Edwards did with the, the movement of the Protestant uh, advances, and he, she returned everything back to Roman Catholicism. She began systematically burning both Bibles and Protestants. Many Protestant scholars fled from England to Geneva, where the famous John Calvin was living. Here they produced this Bible. 
One of these reformers, Calvin's brother-in-law, was William Whiffingham. They completed his translation of the New Testament in 1557. He and other reformers worked on the whole Bible. And three years later, the Old Testament and revised New Testament. Some of the significance in the Geneva translation, it was the first English translation entirely from Greek and Hebrew and the first done by a committee. And it still relied heavily on Tyndale's work and can properly be regarded as the third revision of Tyndale's Bible. It was Calvinistic in notes, exalting the Lord and his glory. The first with verse divisions. This was due for the New Testament, at least to Stephanus, fourth edition of the Greek New Testament in 1551. It's the first Greek with verse divisions. So before the Geneva Bible, we're used to our Bibles having chapter divisions and verses and everything. Before the Geneva, there was none of that. Uh, it was all just uh, look like literal letters. It was the first to use italics extensively for words not in the original text. It was produced in a smaller size, quarto size, for personal use in England. The Bible that the pilgrims found in America at Plymouth with. Shakespeare used as well. Shakespeare used the Geneva Bible. That's pretty important. The Geneva had a long history. During the 45-year reign of Queen Elizabeth, nearly 100 editions were printed. Even 50 years after the King James Version appeared, the Geneva Bible was still the most popular in England. Ultimately, it would not survive due to politics. A new king would come along who wanted his own translation. Now, after the Geneva Bible in 1568, we have the Bishop's Bible. The Bishop's Bible of 1568. Now, it couldn't compete with the Geneva Bible, which came out just eight years earlier. It was a pulpit Bible considered the fourth revision of Tyndale. Called it because it was produced by bishops. The Geneva was a much better translation, and bishops never caught on. It's just, its last printing was in 1606. The first era of English Bible translations lasted from 1382 to 1610, nearly 230 years, a period marked by two things. It was a profound concern that every Christian have access to God's revealed will in the Bible, the church hierarchy suppressing this effort by killing the translation, translators and burning their Bibles, and when that failed, producing their authorized translation to try and stem the tide of Protestant heresy. So that's the end of the first error, is the ones that I've listened. I've been sick a little bit, I've got a cough, I'm sorry uh, for coughing so much, but the second error isn't quite as exciting, but it is somewhat important. We're gonna learn about the King James Version and uh, some of the newer translations that we have today. Fifteen eighty-two, the Roman Catholic Church, seeing that they were losing the fight in keeping Scripture Latin and keeping it from the people, people were starting to have their own copies 
and uh, we're starting to, like I said before, challenge the doctrine of the church and uh, make their own decisions doctrinally. So what they did was politely apologize for all the years of tyranny and uh, gave people money. No, that's not what they did. They were trying to be smart, and they just produced their own English translation. So in 1582, uh, they published their first English New Testament, which was called the Reims New Testament. And this was taken straight from the Latin Vulgate as well. And in 1609, they produced the Douay Old Testament, uh, and that was by the Church of Rome. So at that point in 1609, they have a full, complete English Bible produced by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, with the death of Queen Elizabeth I, Prince James VI of Scotland became King James of England I. So big surprise to everybody, King James was a Scot. I'm a Scot, I like that. <laughs> now, the Protestant clergy approached the new king in 1604 and announced their desire for a new translation to replace the Bishop's Bible. Now, the Geneva Bible won the hearts of the people, uh, but they wanted their own translation that didn't have such controversial marginal notes because the Geneva being produced by um, Calvinists, as we would say, uh, had a lot of marginal notes that was anti-Rome, such as a demon, the Pope, the Antichrist. And they didn't like that. They wanted that out. Well, uh, they did want a Bible uh, that had scriptural references just to uh, help identify word clarification. The King James Version was a combined effort of about 50 scholars. They considered the Tyndale New Testament, the Coverdale, the Matthews, the Great Bible, the Geneva, and they also considered the Reims New Testament, which was produced by the Church of Rome. In 1605 to 1606, they engaged in private research. 1607 to 1609, the, the work was assembled. In 1610, the work went to press. And in 1611, uh, the first 16-inch tall pulpit Bible was produced, and that's what we know today as the 1611 King James Bible. Uh, one of the funny things about it is when it first came off the press, uh, there's a passage in Ruth 3.15 where uh, they uh, misprinted one of the pronouns as he instead of she. So uh, a lot of the Bibles uh, coming off the first printing press were known as the he or she Bible. That's how they identified the difference between them. It took decades for the King James Version to overcome the popularity of the Pro Protestant Church's Geneva Bible. And that's another great irony in history is that now in our area especially, the King James is the Bible. That's what we accept. Uh, there's no other translations. But when it first came out, everybody rejected it because it was a new translation that nobody was used to. Like, why would we change? You know, we have, a, we have the Geneva Bible. Um, Yeah, and uh, actually, another funny irony in history is that uh, a lot of the Protestants today hold to it as the only King James, or the only authorized version, and it wasn't even a Protestant Bible. Um, it was uh, actually produced to compete with the Protestant Geneva Bible. 
So that's another funny little note. While many Protestants are quick to assign full blame of persecution to the Roman Catholic Church, it should be noted that even after England broke from Roman Catholicism in the 1500s, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, continued to persecute the Protestants throughout the 1600s. Uh, a great example of this is John Bunyan, who uh, was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And uh, if you're not familiar with him, I'm sure most of us are, but he produced the... Uh, uh, the no Big Blue Ox. Big Blue Ox. <laughs> no, uh, the, what's the book? Pilgrim's Progress. My mind's blank. I'm sorry. Can't believe I forgot. Should have wrote it down. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout the 1600s, Puritans and the Pilgrims fled the religious persecution to America, taking the Geneva Bible with them. They actually rejected the King James Version. And a lot of uh, Protestants today aren't even familiar with the history of it because the Geneva Bible is 95% the exact same as the King James Version. And it's 50 years older, and it was not influenced by the Reims New Testament from the Roman Catholic Church. For 250 years, the King James Version was uh, unchallenged. It wasn't until 1881 to 1885 that the ERV, or the English Revised Version, was produced. That was its first competitor in the English translation. A little known fact is that for the past 250 years, uh, any King James Version actually is the Blaney 1769 revised Oxford edition of 1611. So you have a lot of people that you run into is like, I hold to the 1611 version, but it's actually uh, was revised in 1769. There's, I think there's also a Cambridge edition as well, right? Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, but another thing that's noticeable is a lot of the King James that are produced today by a lot of the companies still in the front say authorized 1611 version and you can find some King James like that and the purpose behind that is mainly financial motivation to be honest because if they take that out you're going to lose a lot of customers because they got a lot of people that want the true word of God which is the 1611 version so they don't want to hurt their sales the first Bible printed in America was done in the native Algonquin Indian language by John Eliot in 1663. 1663, John Eliot produced a Bible in the native Indian language. The first English Bible in America that was produced was by Robert Aiken in 1782, and it was a King James. The Aikens Bible was the only Bible ever authorized by the United States Congress. So things have came a long way with their government. His daughter, Jane Atkins, would become the first woman to ever print a Bible in America, of course, and it was King James. 1791, Isaac Collins improved on the quality and size of the typesetting and produced the first family Bible which was also uh, the King James Version. He also was 
In the same year, 1791, Isaac Collins produced the first illustrated Bible. Those are always fun. Noah Webster, does anybody know that name? Yep, he produced a dictionary. A lot of people don't know that he produced his own copy of the Bible as well. Uh, a few years after producing his famous dictionary, he would produce a modern language English Bible in 1833. Noah Webster produced his own Bible in 1833. It never caught on due to the popularity of the King James Version. It was hard to, by that time, people had uh, left the Geneva behind and now that's what they're holding to, the King James Version. It wasn't until the ERV, or the English Revised Version, in, eight, in the 1880s. And it was actually planned by the church, or by England, as a replacement for the King James Version. So ERV came along, first real one to challenge the popularity of the King James Version in the 1880s. Another cool thing is, up until the 1880s, every Bible, not just the Catholic Church, had 80 books in it, not 66. So it was pretty recent that the Apocrypha was actually taken out of, of the Bible. Uh, just a little over 100 years, 150 maybe. I don't do math. But they, they took them out, and uh, I think... Uh, Because King James, when he produced his Bible, he actually threatened anybody with uh, high fines and a year in prison if they were to print a Bible without the Apocrypha in it. So it was uh, pretty important to Mr. King James. In 1901 was the American Standard Version. And this was a response by America, or the people in America at the time. I wasn't here yet. It was a response of the English Bible, the ERV. The England produced the Bible to compete with the King James Version. Americans did well as the ASV. Uh, and it actually was, by the most churches and most Christians, was accepted widely. And it was not uh, challenged as far as whether it was the true word of God or not. In 1971, 70 years later, it was revised. So the American Standard Version, 70 years later, became the NASB. That's what we know it as today, the New American Standard Bible. And in 1973, we have the NIV. 1973, they produced the New International Version, the NIV. <coughs> now the NASB, was known and I think is accepted by a majority of people today as being a, one of the better renderings into the English language as far as uh, the balance. It's, it's more formal in its equivalency where we was talking about that last week. The NASB is more formal. Uh, it seems to be accepted as closer to the author's intent than uh, many other English translations. Now the NIV came along and did a more opposite effect. It's more of an, a more dynamic equivalent language of the English translation. And uh, actually a lot of people call it the nearly inspired version. It's a little Protestant joke. <laughs> but uh, 
it's actually a lot of people consider it good for maybe new beginners, uh, new Christians, um, people that don't read as well or whatever. Uh, so you have the contrast in about a two-year period, 1971, the NASB, and 1973, the NIV. So it's pretty back-to-back. And if you notice, a big question is, why do we have so many English translations? Uh, well, a lot of it has to do with uh, the competition between publishers. Money is the driving force. Because if you only had one translation, every other publisher is going to have to pay copyrights uh, to the person that owns the translation. So they come up with their own translation to... Uh, not have to spend the extra money. So it's uh, financially driven. In 1982, uh, two years before I was born, the New King James Version was uh, came into being. 1982. Let's see here. Their original intent was to keep the basic wandering of the King James to appeal to King James Version loyalists, loyal, loyalist, while only changing the most obscure words in the Elizabeth, Elizabethan thee, thy, and thou pronouns. So they tried to keep it as close to the King James Version as possible, but just changing a little bit to help appeal to the audience, the, the consumers, the people with the money. And we're going to stop with 2002, uh, which is the English Standard Version, which uh, the majority of us use and carry, and I know uh, Pastor Paul reads out of it. But the significance of the ESV was to kind of bridge the gap between the NASB and the NIV, where you have NASB is uh, brutally formal equivalency of English, and the NIV's dynamic this is kind of a, a balance between uh, formal equivalency and dynamic equivalency. So that's, I'm, I think there's some more uh, around there somewhere, but when approaching this and talking to people about it, I hope the last couple of days has been beneficial to where we kind of get an understanding of how the process has happened, that it wasn't just a magical thing. Uh, I do believe strongly that God used the men as the means of doing it. You know, these were men that were willing to die and give their lives to uh, the pursuit of translation and trans- transmitting the Bible. So, uh, I think we should be mindful of that. Uh, is there any questions? <laughs>